Up to the present, this integrative power has largely succeeded in absorbing and resolving any crisis, any negativity, creating, as it did so, a situation of the deepest despair, not only for the disinherited, but for the pampered and privileged too, in their radical comfort. The fundamental change now is that the terrorists have ceased to commit suicide for no return. They are now bringing their own deaths to bear in an effective, offensive manner in the service of an intuitive strategic insight, which is quite simply a sense of the immense fragility of the opponent, a sense that the system which has arrived at its quasi-perfection can, by that very token, be ignited by the slightest spark. They have succeeded in turning their own deaths into an absolute weapon against a system that operates on the basis of the exclusion of death, a system whose ideal is an ideal of zero deaths. Every zero death system is a zero sum game system. And all the means of deterrence and destruction can do nothing against an enemy who has already turned his death into a counter strike weapon. The very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machine to Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with our guest today, I want to throw out that we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a buck a month there. We know times are hard. Consider dropping us a positive review on iTunes. If you leave us a review that says fear is the mind killer, I will promise to give you a shout out on the following week's episode. But uh, we're very happy to have our friends from Decode, Cute Numina and Young Agamben joining Taylor and I today. We're going to record on Baudrillard's The Spirit of Terrorism for a second time after last week I neglected to hit record. So these gentlemen have been... (laughs) I've been gracious enough to rejoin us a week after that disaster. So thanks to all of you. And I prostrate myself before you all and and beg of your forgiveness. Thanks so much for having us back. It's great to get back into the libidinal band after that Loyotard series. We've been looking to do this for a while, but you know, we had one ghost episode, which, which honestly I think is for the best. It was a good (laughs) episode, but at least we get to chill twice now. But yeah, I just want to say thanks to the machine unconscious people for having us on Cooper and, and Taylor. We obviously love you guys. As people know, Decode started because of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour when we did that Wicked Leotard series. So we have a lot sort of to to thank Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour for. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's kind of cool that I think both of the at least current iterations of the podcast for me and then for you guys were sort of birthed out of that series of discussions. And I felt like last week we were like kind of able to pick up right where we left off, which was fun. So hopefully we we can bring back some of that magic. Didn't you mention last week that uh, you guys have some stuff coming up that you're doing on Decode? A series yeah. on difference of repetition. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that before we get started? Yeah, the biggest thing we've been planning is this difference in repetition series where we've we've had to work really hard kind of just to get a solid grasp on this lecture series that we're starting, but we just released an episode on Eros and Insurrection last week. 
And the next episode coming out will be really interesting. We're going to do an episode on Paul Virilio's Strategy of Deception, which is a book about what he calls telematic war and uh, the kind of Balkan wars of the 90s, which will have a lot to relate to current events. So look forward to that. And if you haven't listened to the most recent episode, listen to that. But yeah, coming up, really, that Difference in Repetition series is going to be one of the major next milestones in sort of the decode lore. So stay tuned for that. Am I correct that Virilio and Deleuze in particular were good friends or am I? You're right. You're right. They're, they're very close friends, but they also, you can tell Virilio is, is very much a Deleuzian in many, in many senses. In many ways, he's a social slash media theorist, but what he really is interested in is sort of applying a Deleuzianism, but to sort of the material study of war and sort of politics as the continuation of almost these long-standing military sort of shifts, air power, sea power, engines, that's his focus. So he sort of is like a, I would kind of call him a practical Deleuzian in many ways, but you can definitely tie Virilio and Deleuze both personally and in their sort of approach to theory, despite them being sort of in two different arenas, so to speak, you're very much right to say they were close. I always think of him as the Sonic the Hedgehog of theory, right? Because speed exactly. and politics. He's always talking about <laughs> he's always talking about speed. So exactly. Yeah. People gotta read Virilio because I feel like people want to yeah, talk about I, accelerationism, no, but Virilio really, really set down the ontological idea of speed and its influence on material history. Whereas Nick Land, I feel like is kind of a occult kind of abstract thinker. If you want to study acceleration, Virilio's the guy. I mean, he really theoretically laid it down over the course of three or four books there i know one of our mutuals is really big on virilio um shout out to gary who may or may not hear this anyway let's get started on on this do you want to start with your quote Coop? because this was one that i heavily underlined this notion of well i know it was a big quote but this notion of of the ideal of zero deaths we kind of yeah. talked about this last week. Obviously, I'm not, I won't repeat myself by saying that every time we, we had a point. But we did talk about this last week in relation to the current state of affairs with, right. uh, with how, obviously, the ideal of zero deaths has been shown to lie when it's like, oh, don't worry, grandma. If grandma dies, it's okay. You're essential workers. We can get into the COVID era stuff. Yeah. I, I do think that perhaps in, in the, at least ideally in the, in the 90s or sorry he's reflecting on the 90s i guess on the previous decade or even the previous millennium this notion of of an ideal of zero deaths obviously has a lot of resonance with a theme in Baudrillard, right which is this kind of forgetting or this repression of death and it seems to be like a consequence of it i think this is a really important point this uh, ideal of zero death that you're bringing up because it ties into the majority of what we're going to talk about and it speaks to this other major point that Baudrillard is making of the unexchangeability of death under the Western liberal framework. So when we're talking about the ideal of zero death, I think about it this way, that we basically will not accept even one death under terror if we don't have to. In other words, the entirety of the Patriot Act and the sort of uh, acceleration of the military industrial complex is sort of premised on this idea of zero death that we will do whatever it takes to protect a sort of Western American life because we don't have a proper exchangeability of that life 
as compared to someone who's willing to sacrifice their own life in order to make some larger point or to 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 exchange their life for something that we can't really exchange back. For instance, the the NSA had to go in front of Congress and prove that basically spending $30 billion a year and reading all your emails is doing something. And the NSA claimed that they had stopped 53 terrorist attacks in 2014 since 9-11. And then it turns out that really only one of those was stopped by the NSA itself, by this apparatus. And it was essentially a man sending money back to a Somali family, which that Somali family happened to be in a village run by Al-Qaeda or an Al-Qaeda affiliate. So they arrested him for that. But the point being, there's this insane amount of money and resources being spent for the ideal that we will do whatever it takes to protect life, whereas we're willing to destroy millions of lives if that means that we can maintain that comfort, that security of, you know, we're, you're not going to die in a terrorist attack, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. I think 2X is an interesting foil for the COVID era in the sense that I feel like there's certainly like a different geist in place now than there was whenever Baudrillard writes this book. I think that all goes back to this notion that he brings up in the 90s where history sort of stalled, the motor of history kind of flatlines a bit after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And then with 9-11, the absolute event, as Baudrillard refers to it, the motor of history begins to pick up pace. And so I think very much so the geist of the 90s and even and even perhaps beyond you know the early years following 9/11 this geist of the zero death i think was a far more i guess that that idea was or that geist was a lot more robust than it is now it feels like covid has sort of highly eroded the zero death policy even though this does leave room for i think the libidinal elements of what's more libidinally charged is it the accident? Is it the hostage situation? Is it the terrorist attack? Right. So in a sense, we are held hostage by by an accident, the accident of the virus, which sort of also represents the reemergence of the real itself as well, in an even more robust manner than 9-11 attack itself. But at the same time, right, you still have that notion that, you know, obviously libidinally, like the terrorist attack has the charge that dying from a virus doesn't have. But this is definitely, the virus is definitely something that Baudrillard discusses as a harbinger, something that's able to infiltrate this global system and wreak havoc. So I don't know, I rambled quite a bit in a few different directions. No, no, no. I I mean, I I think that you're right to point out that Baudrillard does use the model of of the viral here. He'll also talk about computer viruses, which at the time were, were really just starting to get sort of mass media attention. He discusses the I love you virus, but obviously, you know, in the past 20 years, we can think of dozens of others that have sort of made worldwide news. And I think that obviously COVID is more insidious. It's more impersonal, right? It doesn't have a face. And even though there is a rise in xenophobia and and sort of Asian racism, that's like a a means of trying to put a face on it, right? And trying to scapegoat, uh, trying right, to find right, the blame. Yeah, yeah. Oh, mm. nice. Where, okay, where just as Islamophobia was a way to blame, to sort of make a general scapegoat. Um, and, you know, that we know the irony of the fact that most of the hijackers were Saudis, but we 
we you know we invade Iraq and uh, we don't have to go through all the the bullshit behind um, the logic behind it and the the sort of lies and the willfulness of perpetuating war. Bojard himself points out that the way that the system tries to sort of uh, respond in a way, since it can't respond symbolically, is by force. And we've obviously mm-hmm. seen that borne out. I think that the impersonality of, of COVID obviously makes it more insidious, but no less viral as what you were just describing, Coop. And the one point that I was thinking of when you talked about the sort of emotive intensity, whether it be to the event or to the deaths or to terrorism itself, Bojard makes this interesting claim that, in fact, the emotive violence to exercise, to ward off terror and to brand it with the name evil, like axis of evil, obviously, would be the thing that comes to mind, is the for Bojard, this emotive violence, he calls it, is a means of abreacting. He uses this Freudian term of abreacting. I'm not sure if you guys saw it, just for the listeners Abreaction is a very actually basic concept, even though it has a funny name that a word that we wouldn't normally use in English. And it has to do with discharging the affect associated with a trauma. And so sometimes it can happen in the course of analysis and working through. But as Baudrillard says, really, he actually juxtaposes this, this abreaction is, is associated with an acting out. So instead of working through the trauma of terrorism, there is this acting out of this emotional venting. And for him, it belies the fact or it betrays the very fact that we are in a way desiring or wishful for this, this trauma, right? We, we are like wishful for the destruction of the system. There's this complicity with the terror. He juxtaposes the terror of the system itself in its om in its omnipotence versus the symbolic power of the deaths that, that the terrorists brought on 9-11. Right. I think both of you made really important points here. And I want to just kind of take it back to one point you were both making where this absolute event, as Baudrillard states, marks the return of history in a way. So we have to kind of preface this by understanding that, as Coop mentioned, Baudrillard buys into this idea that history has ended and he calls it the dead point in fatal strategy is a point of non-reversibility where events just kind of come and go, but there's no real event. History has ended. The events are, are merely a series of spectacles, right? And he's buying into this argument that's made by Francis Fukuyama in the 90s. The history has ended because there's no more ideological dialectical history. There's no more challenger to Western liberalism. There's a total global system that one ideology has dominated. So how is history or how events coming back? Well, Baudrillard argues it's not that there's an ideological battle happening here whatsoever. In fact, he argues Islam cannot explain the problem of terrorism at all. What terrorism represents is the reintegration of history through terrorism acting as sort of the functional thing that's driving history. These sort of part internal mechanism that is creating the event itself. And so instead of ideology, like we're saying, it's terror versus terror. It's a history based on the proliferation of terror on every level. And so I'll just read this quote from Baudrillard from page eight, which I think is really important, where he says, this is terror against terror. There is no longer any ideology behind it. We are beyond ideology and politics now. No ideology, no cause, not even the Islamic cause, 
can account for the energy which fuels terrorism. The aim is no longer to transform the world, but as the heretics did in their day, to radicalize the world through sacrifice, whereas the system aims to realize it by force. In other words, the complicity of terror is between the terrorist and the person they're terrorizing or the global hegemon. And in many ways, terrorism is the creation of the global hegemon. And I think we can understand this quite quite simply with, with a, sort of a real world example, which we've sent these drones to kill the top terrorist ranks of Al-Qaeda. During Obama's presidency, we knocked out 80% of Al-Qaeda's top ranks. So we decimated Al-Qaeda. But what international relations theorists realized is that something started happening called the Hydra effect. And they argued that for every one person, one terrorist killed by a drone bomb, the impact of that creates six more terrorists. So in other words, there's this feedback loop of terror where our fear of the terrorist is creating the terror, creating the conditions that create terrorism in the first place. That sort of speaks to this complicity of what's driving history. It's not us versus the other, right? It's us against ourselves, us terrorizing ourselves as the new form of historical progress. History and event spawns from our own fragility, our own sort of collapse our need, our desire to collapse, rather than some outside force challenging us to collapse. Yeah. And I think you can even see that just in the materiality of the mass media, right? Because terrorism only makes, can only have an impact or its libidinal impact can only be so intense whenever there's not a mass media, right? I think there's a difference between a newspaper image and like the footage on CNN of like 9-11, right? There's a far more visceral response, I think, libidinally to those images and different types of image in terms of their, I guess, would it be like a redundance of, redundancy of resonance <laughs> like that? I also wanted to mention too, just from, to go back to the point about, I guess the accident and also the libidinal charge of, of violence in, in the sort of context would be to go back to the film The Dark Knight by Christopher Nolan, because you have a line here. It's in the hospital scene where the Joker goes to visit Two-Face, right? And he says, if I say that a bus full of troops or soldiers or gangbangers is going to get blown up tomorrow, well, you know, nobody, nobody really bats an eye. But if one little mayor dies, then everybody loses their minds. And it's not exactly what Baudrillard is saying, but I think it gestures towards this idea of the hostage or the surprise or the accident having a far more, I guess, yeah, goes back to libidinal charge relative to something like a soldier dying just doesn't have the same cachet, if you will, or the same emotional impact. So the same symbolic charge. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. It can't be exchanged one for the other. I mean, it, it just speaks to like what Baudrillard is saying about the unexchangeability of the terrorist event. You know, 3,000 people die in 9-11, but the libidinal charge of that event, you know, our ab reaction to it, as you know, you're saying, Taylor, is four failed states later and 5 million people dead in order to try and right the wrong that we felt was so intense. Quickly, I think that uh, what you said, Young, about the Hydra effect, you know, it goes back to your quote about, which I love Bojard kind of twisting one of the most famous lines of Marx, the 11th thesis on Feuerbach, right? Which is philosophers have always interpreted the world. The point is to change it, right? right. And so now Bojard's like, it's not about changing the world anymore. Now it's about radicalizing through sacrifice, like the heretics. 
Right. There's an interesting way in which the Hydra effect, we return our own terror, uh, but less in the symbolic realm. And as you're saying, in this in this ramping up of force. And so our the drone strikes, the the sort of the murdering of all of these individuals turns them in a certain way into martyrs and gives them symbolic efficacy that they would only be able to get through a means of spectacle, through their own glorious deaths in some sort of suicide bombing or whatever. It's not like they become martyrs consciously. It's like they're not just statistics, right? They're not just, it has these ripple effects. It turns the populace more and more determinedly against the dominant system, the hegemon, as you've been calling it. So there's a way in which, as you're saying, we're fighting ourselves. We can't exchange symbolically. We're actually just exponentially making it irreversible, right? Or making it less exchangeable. We're giving it more and more symbolic value rather than destroying a destroying an enemy. That's a really good point, Taylor. And I think you can really view the contrast between like the these two contrasting like epistemic paradigms between like the West and what we can we consider like the the outside the other which would be like the quantification of the West, this kind of like understanding of zero death, not just as not wanting to, you know, like not one single American life, but also like the reduction of death as a whole in the West, the the loss of symbolism that death has as a whole. And I think that there's this thinker, uh, I forgot the first name, but it's uh, Ebembe, who wrote Necropolitics. And there's a good point in there about how under the global hegemon, such as neoliberalism, that the only thing that an individual kind of has at, at the end of the day under such a constricting power is the ability to choose one's own death. And in that way, it's the greatest tool that, and Mbembe is really clear not to kind of glorify or romanticize this. He's almost, in some, in some of the parts of the book, he's almost um, critical of it, but being able to choose one death towards you know, martyrdom, for example, in the case of terrorism. And so we have these competing, like I mentioned, uh, epistemic understanding, or maybe even at some at some point, metaphysical understanding of death. And in the United States, it's, it's and we've seen this with, you know, maybe we can talk about this a bit more in terms of COVID-19, you know, that's this bare life of pure quanta, just how many people can we, how many people are dying, how many people are staying alive. And then contrast to you know, more symbolic understanding of death and, you know, what, what your life or what, what death can do in terms of fighting global hegemony or what, uh, you know, Islam would call jihadism. You know, it's a, it's a struggle towards defending one's faith. So it's a forceful way. It's, it's a violent way, but it's, it's a, it has a clear definition. That's why it's, you know, under a certain epistemic worldview, it would be justified. So I think, yeah, it's very important to see that it, this, this internal contradiction of power that almost this, the more centralized that it becomes, the internal contradictions of it want to destabilize it. It's, it's that, you know, we, we mentioned in Young and Taylor both brought up this point about how external force as such as like COVID-19, but it's in fact this internal force, it's these internal contradictions that did lead to something like the 9-11 attacks. It's not hard to for us to, you know, with hindsight, be able to be like, understand and critically see that, you know, a lot of those operatives, yeah, they were Saudis, they were individuals that were from the Middle East, but they were all, at least to some degree or another, were trained by the CIA, you know, it's these internal, these internal mechanisms already within the system to kind of destabilize itself, just in a way to kind of progress history. It's almost like the complicity, I believe, 
you know, I think there's an argument to be made that the complicity is almost conscious when you're talking about sort of the CIA almost creating, as they often do, the terrorism in which they can point to and go, look, we have to stop this terrorism. You know, bin Laden himself was one of the CIA's most important assets through most of his life. I mean, when he was fighting in Afghanistan, he was by far the most important asset we had. So the CIA is basically connected to all of these terrorists, but I I think the complicity is not so conscious. I don't think it's like, you know, the CIA going to bin Laden and being like, you're going to do this attack, which is going to give us the, you know, thing to do this. I think it's almost a complicity on an unconscious paranoid level where the CIA thinks terrorism is out there and it needs to do everything it needs to stop the terrorist. So it basically starts breeding terrorists to prove to itself, to abreact that this is something that's really a threat and that we need to stop through force, right? We need to keep increasing that force because terrorism keeps increasing without truly realizing with this cognitive dissonance that the force is creating the terror, which then feeds back into the force, right? So I almost think there's this paranoia of, you know, whenever the CIA or the FBI gets caught kind of like going to young Muslim men and basically trying to get them to commit crimes and then charging them with them sort of points to not that they're just, you know, that they hate Muslim people or that they they just want to put them all in jail. It's, it's this paranoia that Islam is our enemy, that Islam is, is sort of the key to terrorism. And we need to be forceful when we're dealing with people that could be terrorists and so on and so forth. I think there's almost this unconscious complicity between the terrorist and say the FBI, the CIA, the hegemon, because the hegemon needs the terrorist more than it needs anything else right? It needs the terrorist to justify its use of force. And it needs the terrorist to justify, there needs to be something that justifies a certain dominance over the entire world, right? There needs to be a reason why we have to have, you know, 400 military bases and, you know, basically give countries the entirety of their GDP to fight terrorism, right? It becomes the be all end all justification for the global international order. I think it's, uh, I'm just gonna add this point, very briefly, I agree with what you just stated here, Young, which is this complicity that that exists in terms of these internal, let's say, these internal factions of destabilization. And I think it's important to kind of, on the one part, recognize those internal insurrectionary forces, you know, like terrorism or terrorist groups, they are real in that sense. But at the same time, like that, we can't, it would be kind of misguided, maybe, to kind of give that much power to the hegemon. Because I think the point that Baudrillard is trying to make as well is that in these moments, such as the event, the, you know, he states that it is the event that kind of keeps history going uh, post, um, you know, post the end of history, let's say, Fukuyama's thesis, is that it destabilizes the hegemon in, in a way that it, I wouldn't want to say it gives power back, but it does create this notion of there is something that escapes the hegemon. There is something that is outside the internal logic of the system. And so I agree hundred percent. It's there's a certain element of it, which is a simulation, you know, where we try to capture it again, where we try to say, oh, well, in a way we're upholding that narrative, a mere narrative of power of the United States or neoliberalism that it can maintain control and it can create these militia groups and stuff to kind of propagate terrorism so that we have a justification for global intervention. But at the same time, I think that those factions themselves, and I should be careful here, are legitimized in the sense that they do exist outside of the global hegemon. They they are outside forces in a sense that they they are in direct competition, or I should say in direct 
competition for power with the United States in the sense that they they are putting it to task in a way. They're they are in a way critique, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think it does make sense. In a way, terrorism is this critique, an internal deconstruction of the thing it's attacking, a kind of a brilliant deconstruction of what it's attacking in many ways. And I think Don DeLillo makes this point better than anyone in, in Mao too in dealing with terrorism, where he basically argues that the novel art used to be terrorism. It used to be the thing that pointed out the internal contradictions of the empire in which it was created and sort of deconstructed the world and had the, had the possibility of transforming the world. But now the novel doesn't have that power anymore. The real novelist, the real artist is, is the terrorist. You know, And Mao Tu, the novelist of the book who can't finish his book, ends up becoming the translator for a Lebanese Marxist-Leninist terrorist group in this sort of metaphor of what he really wanted was to have this capacity to, to critique the world in a way that mattered. And it wasn't just this solipsistic way for him to try and deal with it. So terrorism, terrorism is almost the, the pure form of critique because it's, it's critique at the level of pure internal combustion, right? It's forcing the thing you're attacking to destroy itself. It's like Baudrillard said, it's not the plane hitting the, the tower that brought the Twin Towers down. The Twin Towers committed suicide because of their reaction to getting hit. You know, in this metaphor of them collapsing under their own weight, under their own internal contradictions, it wasn't really the plane hitting them that did it. It's the ab reaction from the plane's impact. There's a really good quote here in the middle of the Spirit of Terrorism essay, the first essay in the volume, obviously the, where the volume gets its name. And he's talking about the symbolic efficacy of sacrifice, of the deaths in the terroristic act. And he says the sort of symbolic and sacrificial death is the spirit of terrorism. But I just want to read a little bit because I think it's relevant here. He says, never attack the system in terms of relational force, something we've been talking about. That is the revolutionary imagination the system itself forces upon you, the system which survives only by constantly drawing those attacking it into fighting on the ground of reality, which is always its own. But shift the struggle into the symbolic sphere where the rule is that of challenge, reversion, and outbidding so that death can be met only by equal or greater death. Defy the system by a gift to which it cannot respond except by its own death and its own collapse. The terrorist hypothesis is that the system itself will commit suicide in response to the multiple challenges posed by deaths and suicide. It's interesting because this is very much consistent with what Virilio says, and this is interesting because we were talking about him earlier, and what Deleuze and Guattari take from Virilio in A Thousand Plateaus when they are analyzing fascism. And they are distinguishing fascism from totalitarianism. And long story short, for them, their analysis of fascism and what they get from Virilio is precisely that it's a suicidal state, right? Precisely that it's on this suicidal line of flight and it wants to bring death everywhere through the death of the other. And so mm. there is an interesting way in which without saying it here explicitly, but if you connect with what he says here, with what Baudrillard says here, with what Virilio and Deleuze and Guattari analyze in terms of fascism, there is a way in which saying that the, as you were calling it, the internal contradictions of the sort of global omnipotent system or the quasi-omnipotent system is in a certain sense, at least in this aspect, fascist. I think that obviously, you know, it might be 
a loose use of the term, right? Because a lot of times we like to, I know that on the internet, you can call anyone you disagree with fascist, right? And, it, and so the word kind of has lost its meaning. But I think in this theoretical sense, there's a sense in which there's a fascistic element to it. I think that's a really good point that the death drive sort of intensity or energy of fascism applies here. It just reminds me of like the idea of in fascism of the death drive towards total war of wanting total war. You know, we go back to those Hitler speeches that are very famous of, you know, the war is ending, they know they're going to lose. And he's going, do you want total war? Do you want total destruction? And people are cheering, you know, this is sort of the end game of fascism itself. Terrorism is sort of the perfect justification for fascism because it's almost an all out holy war, right? It's the total war that you really couldn't have created in sort of a Westphalian international order like Germany tried to do. This is a war everywhere that will never end, that will never be fought, that requires total use of resources across every single aspect of life. I think it's a great point you're making that there is this fascistic element to it. It's, it's almost like fascism, fascism's wet dream in a certain way. Taylor, just a quick side. I, I think it's really, really awesome that you guys bring this point up. I didn't even think about it when I was reading. But correct me if I'm wrong, is that from A Thousand Plateaus where they develop more of the idea of the war machine? This is in the nomadology chapter. Go ahead. Okay. Because I was going to mention that that um, it's a really great example, actually, now that you bring it up, that that's really awesome. How the United States really does hijack that that notion of, of the war machine. You know, it, it's like you can clearly see it, how, you know, it's that thing that you try to suppress and it's it's always present in, in the state. It's the transcendental object of the state. And then it weaponizes, or I shouldn't even say weaponize it, it utilizes or it hijacks it in a way, it plugs itself into the war machine, and it always tries to create the other. It always tries to, Mm. in this way that you guys mentioned, it tries to create xenification to be able to complete the circuit of the death drive. And Mm. the moment that it can no longer complete the circuit, it instantly starts like cannibalizing itself. It's interesting too that we can't just, it's not, it's not just Baudrillard being woke and saying like, oh, the the West is bad. He does specifically say if Islam dominated the world, terrorism would rise up against it. It's the globe itself resisting globalization. I think he says something like yeah. that. Yeah, right? yeah, he does. I like how he says it. He goes, happily, universal yeah, happily. power demands a universal hatred of it. So, it's, but, so it's not just it's not just Baudrillard kind of saying, oh, the West deserves it for all of its crimes, even though that may be empirically true. He's kind of talking on a deeper theoretical level, right? That if history contingently were were different and global powers culminated elsewhere or were culminating elsewhere, then it would be right to to terrorize globalization. I think that's basically what he's saying. It's it's right to terrorize the center of, of globalization. I just double checked the at least the uh, Virilio citation and what I was looking at. It first occurs in Plateau Nine, the micropolitics and segmentary. Mm plateau but i know that they go into a deeper analysis of fascism later in the nomadology chapter so just to clarify i was the part i was looking at it's the very end of um plateau nine and it ends so amazingly because they he, he brings up kind of what you were talking about um young where he says they say here hitler decides to join forces with his enemies in order to complete the destruction of his own people by obliterating the last remaining resources of his life support system Civil reserves of every kind, water, fuel, provisions, etc. It was this reversion of the light of flight into a line of destruction that already animated the molecular focuses of fascism and made them interact in a war machine instead of resonating in a state apparatus. 
a war machine that no longer had anything but war as its object and would rather annihilate its own servants than stop the destruction. All the dangers of the other lines pale by comparison. And that's the end of the plateau. It's like, yeah. Fascism bad. It's like an anime. (laughs) So in this model is Al-Qaeda a war machine. Yeah, it's gotta be. It's nomadic. It's gotta be its machine. own, right? Yeah, it's the nomadic war machine, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I li- quite literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's it's interesting because it's hard to call it fascist only insofar as in their definition of fascism, a war machine takes war as its object and sort of appropriates a state rather than a state normally appropriating a war machine like an like an army. For them, it's fascism that kind of builds a state around it and then takes it on this line of flight of death. So yeah. insofar as it's a stateless actor, which is one of the main definitions kind of, yeah, of terrorism. Or, yeah. And, and one of the difficulties of the fucking past 20 years of, in Afghanistan, all this, how do you fight a stateless? As Young was saying earlier, this, this kind of post-Westphalian type of warfare doesn't necessarily work out as we've seen. And I don't think it could have happened any other way, but in, in this kind of failure. I guess my question would be, would the terrorists themselves be considered fascist under the definition? And I think it's only in appearance. I think for Baudrillard, this symbolic sacrifice, this kind of heretical radicalization is different. You know what I mean? This, this use of death is different than the line of destruction and death that fascist states undertake. It's an open question for me. What do you guys think about that? I think that's, that's a pretty good way to look at it. Yeah, it's true. Did you see uh, on on uh, Twitter, there's a big kind of debate where, uh, do you guys oh, no. like know a lot about the OKC bombing in the 90s, like Tim McVeigh? I saw, I saw someone someone's suggesting or claiming they had evidence that it was done by the CIA. Yeah, is, is I mean, that, it was more FBI. About? Yeah, but it's, right. it's interesting because there's like a big debate because then like a lot of leftists are coming in and being like, oh, these people are like, crazy for thinking that like somebody did this you know so there's kind of this debate about like the people who like know a lot about the okc bombing and then people kind of attacking others for having a conspiratorial mind towards it but i mean the okc bombing is like one of those things that had like so many loose ends that it was so obvious you know what i mean like that that was one of those things that went bad are you talking about that thread yeah yeah because that's my friend that like 12 ball person who like to post about okc a lot he does like a lot of research into it he has like a lot of good threads where he'll kind of accumulate a lot of like the evidence that'll give you something to look into but yeah and then there's like leftists kind of attacking that front so there's like this debate about conspiracies themselves and like how to think about them which is really interesting because if you're doing a conspiracy you can basically bank on your average american just like not even wanting to believe that something like that would be possible you know what i mean the fact that people will argue anybody who thinks the okc bombing is a conspiracy is uh you know that's pretty good news for the intel agencies i feel like well technically it was a conspiracy in the legal sense but you mean in the legal sense you mean in the sense of people not giving conspiracy theories that, that it's like that the inside job and red flag. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yeah. I guess this is a good time to bring it back to, to what Bojigar says about conspiracy, which I think is interesting. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's basically kind of saying, because obviously he's writing in 2002 to 2004. So the real hardcore conspiracy theories were just, just in, in Kuwait at the time, just, yeah. just kind of germinating. But he kind of says his main pushback seems to be less like doubting that it's possible because i don't think that that, i don't think that it's beyond the pale it's that 
doesn't this seem to give agency back to the powers that be? Doesn't this exactly. seem to be giving agency back to the dominant powers and and kind of has a chauvinism, a type of supremacy where it's like, well, of course, the primitive Muslims terrorists couldn't do that. There is a kind of, I don't want to say xenophobia, but a kind of arrogance there. And it seems to be saying, well, of course, something of this destruction only we could do to right. ourselves. And I think that Bojarad's like, no, when he says that the towers committed suicide and that we are complicit and that we desired it, he's not necessarily saying that we actively performed it as right. well. I think that that would be then to diminish the symbolic efficacy that he's talking about. And maybe right. that's part of the ab reaction or really a reactionary form of emotive violence to say like, well, it's okay, we did it to ourselves. And, right. and, and thereby to deal with the trauma that way. That's kind of how I, I find that convincing, even though the conspiracy theories are wildly fascinating and entertaining. But I don't know, what do you guys think? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I think conspiracy becomes dangerous because it's conspiracy itself that can be easily weaponized, right? And it gives the credence to the fact that maybe there's so much control, you can't do anything about it. The idea of a conspiracy is tough because, yeah, real conspiracies happen. They happen all the time. And you can find crazy stories, crazy conspiracies. But in engaging in conspiratorial thinking or to sort of place the entirety of events in the hands of shadowy figures has, like you're saying, I think a, a positive effect for the people in power, whether or not they did it, that's still positive, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, it still gives it's like, them the power. Like you're no, saying, no, the emperor is not, the emperor has clothes kind of. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's tough. It's like you engage in conspiracy, but even if you're right, is it worth sort of pushing a conspiratorial view if what you actually want is sort of to deconstruct the conspiracy itself or deconstruct or to hold people accountable for doing those things, it almost doesn't help you to be like, well, we need to find the people who really did 9-11, like Cheney. And, but, you know, it's like that almost has a negative implication for achieving what you want. It's kind of yeah. a bad means to an end. That's a good point, too. And, and I think that the, the mechanism that that is frightening and frustrating. But what I love, too, is the paranoid principle behind conspiracy theories by which I mean they're not falsifiable, right? So they're really right. not they're really not theories in any sense, in any obviously in a loose sense that you can you can mm -hmm. use that word, but they're they're not falsifiable because any means to falsify them is just a deeper level of the conspiracy, right? Right. And and so the only means is to everything is self-confirming, right? And I think that that is is another that's at least the epistemological terror, or that's the epistemological vertigo one could say that you're faced with with conspiracy theories there's a there's a great documentary and i know coop you have something brought up and i'll let you talk about this right after there's a great documentary on flat earthers which mm. is done in a very charitable way and yeah and at the end right they're trying to do some experiment which is great because <laughs> most conspiracy theories don't go to the level of scientific experiment they're trying yeah. to do some experiment using lasers and and whatnot about the kind of curvature of the earth. And, you know, for the most part, the, the documentary has been, I'll just say very lenient and giving them enough rope to hang themselves with. And it kind of ends with, you know, them getting the data back that they didn't want. And they're just kind of like, oh, well, I guess we have to recalibrate. You know, that's kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. how it is. Yeah. <laughs> because they, because again, like it's, it's, it's not the data they, they wanted. It's kind of, like Theranos cherry picking data points in order right. to 
to put on the front that their their shit uh, works. Anyway, sorry. Outliers, bro. Outliers. What'd outliers, bro. Outliers, yeah, outliers, right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Coop, you have something brought up. Have you seen this? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I was going to go back to my own, I guess. My initial reaction to the 9-11 <laughs> attacks were that it was a false flag executed yeah. by the bush administration yeah, to, so that so they could railroad through their little agenda of the police state which and um, war right that yeah that goes yeah to, two wars also on the topic of conspiracy theory i just i did see a little film by an imaginative young man by the name of alex jones titled 9-11 the road to tyranny and, <laughs> and this is goes this, this is alex jones yeah this is oh alex jones God. what's interesting is that you know, you kind of described exactly kind of what like Alex Jones was right. Right. That 9-11 was the road to tyranny. Yeah. But because of the conspiracy, like this really illustrates that kind of point you guys were kind of just making, I think, about conspiracy. Right. Because what is he? <laughs> I guess. It, well, then again, you know, the question becomes what is, you know, is Alex Jones a, a uh, an honest arbiter? Right. Does, yeah. Is his motive? Was his motivation ever beyond? A dollar, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that, you know, one would wonder, right? That becomes itself an insidious question because it's like, are the conspiracy theorists merely con men or are they are they mad scientists? Right. Right. Scientists. I, I can I, I can answer that question for you, Taylor. Yeah. They're all con men because they're all Hegelians. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just kid. But um, yeah, I just wanted to make that joke. Yeah, I guess, the, the, you know, because there's a. In the '90s, there's it's actually a pretty good movie. I think it's just called Conspiracy Theory, right, with Mel Gibson and uh, oh yeah, I think I know what you're talking about Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts, yeah. And it has uh, Patrick Stewart as the bad yeah. guy. Um, right. Yeah, it's actually a pretty good movie. It holds up, and uh, you know, obviously in that movie there is some. The question is, it like if he's trying to grift anybody? It's more that kind of the fantastic, where you know it's either he's crazy or there is the conspiracy, and you know it. The movie rides that fine line until it shows that he's not crazy. I mean, he's crazy, but he but he's right. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, I think just to kind of bring up that point, I think the, the thing with conspiracies, too, is just to kind of tie it to the topic at hand in terms of conspiracies. It's not like they're in a vacuum, right? Like they there's there's always maybe some truth sprinkled in there. And I think Baudrillard does talk about this. I forgot what section of the book. I think it's pretty early on in the essay or maybe midway where he talks about, um, uh, you know, like fiction, how, uh, you know, it's like this kind of potlatch even with, with between, you know, reality and fiction itself. It's like, which one can outcompete each other? Oh, I don't know if it's in this essay, but. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it in is. The, it's in the collection. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. Which one can be more unimaginable? Isn't that exactly what, what that's it the is? Quote. Yeah. That's yeah. the right quote. Yeah, so it's and it's like you know that's like in a way that's also the the job that conspiracy plays. It's it's um this hyperstition or this fiction that you know tries to become itself real mm -hmm. in a way it does legitimize the very object that it's criticizing or that it's trying to unravel. Trump and RussiaGate as an example of that par excellence, right? Right. Yeah, conspiracy has its own its own intensity to it. Its own like its own fictional reality that you're right competes with reality itself i think that's that's sort of the nature of conspiracy itself i'm really interested i really like the uh from the 70s really uh if you've heard of the discordians or discordianism it was started by uh, robert anton wilson and carrie thornley when they were working at playboy 
magazine. And essentially they worked at Playboy when Playboy was still kind of like a cool literary place, but they were in charge of receiving all of the letters and stuff. So a bunch of crazy people would send them like, you got to read this book about the Rothschilds and all this, right? So they, they keep getting all of this conspiracy stuff. And <laughs> Robert Anton Wilson, and I forget the other guy's name, is it's Robert, the second guy, but these two guys write this really great book series called the Illuminatus Trilogy, in which they claim they're trying to put every conspiracy together and make it all tied together. A unified, and- a unified theory? <laughs> exactly. And this the is sort of Discordian, Discordianism sort of believes that by pointing out the ridiculousness of conspiracy, you know, that they can kind of prove that that conspiracy can't actually exist because Discordianism is a religion and they worship Eris. Eris is the goddess of chaos, strife. Yeah. strife and chaos. You know, the famous story, Eris creates a golden apple because she's not invited to Mount Olympus. And she says, give this, you know, this is for the most beautiful god. And all of the gods end up killing each other for it. And supposedly that's actually spills over into the Trojan War. So it's sort of an old Greek myth. And Eris represents sort of the inability to ever know or order anything properly. So by worshiping Eris, we're worshiping the destruction of all ordered conspiracy whatsoever. The problem is this is all well and good until these conspiracies that they were writing about and kind of joking about were becoming true, especially the JFK conspiracy. Carrie Thornley actually knew Oswald, and he wrote a novel about Oswald before the shooting. So the FBI gets a hold of it and they start questioning him. And Carrie Thornley actually starts to kind of go insane because all these crazy conspiracies that he was kind of joking about seem to have some credence to it. In other words, the unimaginability that he he was sort of putting out there has come back and sort of beaten reality, beaten, beaten, beaten him over the head with its own reality that sort of popped up out of the supposed fiction. So in other words, conspiracy has this weird hyperstitional ability to make that fiction a reality when you're confronted with certain sets of data. So what I like about discordianism is the idea that like, yes, conspiracy theories on the whole are pretty ridiculous, but that does not mean they don't have a certain intensity or function. Oh, yeah. To them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. If anybody, if there, no one had a strong point, I wanted to go back to the uh, master-slave dialectic. So we kind of skipped mm. over that, which I think, right, it's kind of like the, the slave is sort of buying little parts of life or it's being given little parts of life from the master. And the only way that the slave can sort of, the only like praxis to collapse this for the slave is not to, is to like, there is their own imminent death, right? Like their immediate death. Mm is the only option left to them in this particular, I guess, I don't know what you would call that, right? I guess in the dialectic, right? As that applies to, I guess, this notion of symbolic exchange between the hegemon and the terrorists themselves, right? So it's like, and he says early on, I think even in that quote that I opened up the episode with that now terrorists like have figured out how they're no longer dying without a symbolic value they've figured out via ter- terrorism has given them an opportunity to symbolically exchange in which they didn't have that ability in a prior iteration of i don't know <laughs> i don't know what you would call that yeah i think there's this there's this idea of death sacrifice and exchange is obviously you know deeply interesting to baudrillard and i think he does a really good job of sort of explaining how that functions, right? Especially when it comes to terrorism. But 
there's aspects of this that I'm really interested in that I, I, I kind of want to hear your guys' thoughts on because there's almost a secular nature to sacrifice in Baudrillard's configuration. But whenever I think of ter- especially terrorism and sacrifice, I really think Bataille takes this to, to something that, that Baudrillard not misses, but doesn't really engage with, which whenever I think of Bataille, his most important contribution to my mind is his theory of religion or of what's sacred being that which you sacrifice so that, you know, religion and divinity itself is sort of the conduit between that is sacrifice. So it seems to me like there's almost a deeper metaphysical element to the type of sacrifice that terrorism, you know, uses that might go beyond sort of what Baudrillard's getting at here. I wonder if you guys kind of thought about this too, about is there a real key difference here between what Bataille and Baudrillard are saying, or what really is the nature of sacrifice here? Like, what is it about sacrifice that makes it, because clearly sacrifice is the strategic aim or the strategic sort of weakness of the West. Yeah. I mean, he seems to be saying that it's through sacrifice that the symbolic efficacy is raised to, to a fever pitch to its highest intensity through mm-hmm. one's own sacrifice. And this gets back to what Coop was bringing up with the Hegelian dialectic as Baudrillard in the first chapter of Symbolic Exchange and Death wants to reverse the reading or understanding of Hegel's master-slave dialectic and say, it's not that the master doles out little bits of life, but in fact doles out small bits of death. And it's only when we when we are able to give our immediate unexpected death and only when we can sort of force the hand that is doling out the small doses that we can force this reversibility force force this gift force a counter gift that can only be met with death which gets back to this question about suicide and i think that that's how i would read it so if there is a if it's if it's secular for baudrillard this notion of sacrifice it's only secular insofar as the symbolic realm for him or symbolic exchange has become secularized in modern in the modern era yeah he does say that as i guess as americans or the west we don't have like the for example the terrorists at least you know theoretically or whatever have are entitled to their time in paradise and you know the famous you know the 72 virgins etc right Mm -hmm. and that sort of salvation is foreclosed to us we no longer have access to that even that salvation right and so there's a sort of i guess in that sense there's it's not a humiliation but i think humiliation is is part of this right yeah bujar says that it's not because it's not that they're jealous the cause was not because of out of jealousy that the terrorists acted it was because of a humiliation because of the abundance that the west has or can give and I don't, I don't know how to quite, I don't know if that kind of doesn't sit very kosherly, let's say with me exactly. But I do yeah. think that humiliation definitely plays a big, big part of this whole yes. relative to symbolic exchange, potlatch, et cetera, as it contextualized on 9-11 as this sort of humiliate, it's a, there's a humilitory element yeah. because we're unable to repay the symbolic it, though we are we can rain we can destroy the world we can rain violence and terror all these horrible things that we can do but we just we still are impotent 
right? That impotence is what humiliates us. And that yeah. is what some elements of potlatch are is a gift that is so abundant that it negates its reciprocity. Something like Christ mm. dying for our, our sins, right? We can never repay that debt. There's an infinite amount of debt. So it humiliate, it's humiliating to us to have to sort of acquiesce to, I guess, that, I don't know how that works in terms of sacrifice exactly yeah. when it comes to Christ. But I don't know. That's that's pretty interesting. What we ended up sacrificing was a lot of our, just loosely, a lot of our our freedoms, right? This dialectic between security and freedom. We were just talking about this sort of road to tyranny thing, which retrospectively is is an obvious truth. There's a way in which that humiliation is not, as Coop said, it, it can't be repaid, but it's almost like palliated or almost like spread out. Yeah, you know, it's it's almost uh, as a way to try to dissipate it. And I was thinking about the fact that this humiliation thing, which is a good point, Coop, and one that Bojard makes several times in the in the essays. The best we could do and ended up doing was try to humiliate individuals. I mean, we think about mm -hmm. Guantanamo Bay, and, right? Yeah, uh, and the the scandal with. Abu Ghraib yeah. as well, yeah. yeah Abu yeah, Ghraib. Abu Ghraib. Right. Abu Ghraib is obviously the one, but but it's interesting because by trying to humiliate these these individuals, and by that itself becoming a spectacle, there is a sense in mm -hmm. which that's just another, like that's just another a self own. That's just another humiliation in the end for a system. It rehumiliates us because I think it shows again the impotence that Coop is talking about. This impotence that the best we can do is try to humiliate a few individuals. Right. right. Instead of being able to actually enter into an exchange. I think those are great points. I, I have two things real quick. I think, Coop, what you're bringing up about this sort of no more salvation kind of, it reminds me of, I think the terrorist sort of achieves the revolutionary potential that Nick Land lays out when, you know, he, he's talking in Meltdown about how revolution needs to be stripped of its salvation complex and stripped to its burn core of attacking human security. In many ways, the terrorist does exactly that. It's, it's right. an attack on human security and on comfort itself. The second thing, I, I really like what you were saying. I really liked what you were saying about sacrifice. And I, I think what, what I'm getting from this, and maybe you guys can, can see if this resonates, is this unexchangeability, but also what what's being sacrificed here. When we're moving a little bit beyond Baudrillard into my sort of you know, sort of bringing battalion. I think Baudrillard makes the point that what's what's happening here, just like the heretics, the terrorist wants to sacrifice the world for almost a, a sacred purpose, right? To sacrifice the world because it needs to be purified in many ways, right? Whereas the global hegemon will sacrifice the world for its own comfort. But regardless, I think there's a global jihad here for the end of the world, an apocalyptic jihad to see how the world ends. Does it end because the heretics can end it and sort of save it from the hegemon, or does the hegemon get to end the world on its own terms for its own comfort? I think there's something deeply and almost divinely at stake when we're thinking about what Baudrillard calls World War IV, or this battle between the terrorist and the hegemon. To me, it almost seems like the only end game is the apocalypse, is the method or revelation of the apocalypse or how the world ends. There's this, this deep sacred notion of how we sacrifice the gift that we were given. How do we give it back through the sacred act of, of sacrificing? It goes back to like, uh, you guys read uh, Anna Karenina, 
when you were in school or in anything, the Tolstoy novel. I think it's deeply important to know that comfort is highly dangerous. Comfort is probably one of the more dangerous things that you can acquire. And I think Tolstoy does a good job of explaining it because he calls it the curse of the feather bed, being that you shouldn't sleep on really, really comfortable beds or else you get weaker and weaker and weaker. And this is laid out by like one of the working class people in the book that like comfort just asks for more comfort. You can always be more comfortable, right? You always are going to want to be more comfortable, but comfort is in many ways a hindrance to life itself. It's almost like a protection from life, a bubble that keeps you from acting naturally, acting in a way that's, that's worthy of human action itself. This reminds me of like demonology, making a pact, for example, with the demon and what that entails. What's his name? Jason Mahogneg, I think that's his name, wrote Omnicide. He brings up a couple of points regarding how, you know, for example, if we want to make just the analogy, for example, the global hegemon sacrifices certain aspects of, you know, society or civil liberties, like you mentioned, young to kind of propagate itself to maintain its hegemony at all costs. And so it's like making these packs with these demons, for example, it's like, what's, you know, what's the pact of the Middle East with, with oil, for example, it's like, you know, like demon as an oil or sorry, oil as a demon. They also make a certain, a certain pack, a strategic pact to kind of try to purify the world. And I guess my thing would be with, I think we always like to think that demons themselves are, aren't pure. I think that's just something to do with like Christian like a Christian understanding of the world, but you know, it's it's why do people sacrifice things to demons if not for the same ritualistic purification? So I, I guess my connection is just to, to to that notion of the Batai and sacred, which is always that you know it's that transcendental waste that cannot be recaptured in a way, and that base materialism which gives rise to the sacred in a way. The thing that we the excess of our societies is what we is the sacred thing that you sacrifice for, you know, in the, in the case of the United States for security. Yeah. Yeah. The continuation of life itself under its current standards. And I think, yeah, I think that's funny because just to kind of tie it with a current event, maybe we can talk about this more later if, or if you guys want to bring it up now about COVID-19, how we're able to give up even more civil liberties to maintain, not even just to try to return to normal, but it's just kind of like a, like a survival, I think it's, you know, yeah, true bare life. Life. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. definitely a whole new regime of biopolitics and being instituted for sure. And that's why I think that I mentioned earlier, like that relation to death, I think has changed for sure. At one time, yes, the value of life was certainly in the 90s. Like I said, it, it's a highly distinct, I think, from what you see now. Like, I don't think you would see, I mean, well, I feel like COVID in the 90s, that wouldn't have happened. I don't know, like, 9-11 itself really went a long way to, I don't know, even what the, <laughs> like destituting liberalism. Um, well, well, it, it, it did happen, but it did kind of take a different form, you know, that you can tie it directly to like the AIDS crisis, um, but it, it, it just took the shape of the other, um, you know, it's like, oh, well, it's in a way it's kind of like God's judgment on the earth, you know, for right. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 We've been sinners. Yeah. There's that suicide factor, too, of sort of uh, the, like you were talking about earlier, Q, of the system cannibalizing itself for its own survival. In other words, you know, for terrorism or COVID or any of these things, the system is willing to sacrifice its own sort of what it's trying to offer, right? Democracy, rights, 
the standard of living, all of these things, it's starting to be willing to sacrifice its own project in order to survive as sort of a zombie carcass of what it what it used to be. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Something we brought up last week that I think gets lost is one of the, you know, we've mentioned abreaction a few times and one of the and what Bogiard calls a mode of violence, which, you know, for for those who maybe are too young to remember in the aftermath, how much nationalistic fervor, how much talking heads and I mean, we mentioned Islamophobia and just the fever pitch, the intensity of the emotions and the xenophobia that, that came about. And I think that one of the reasons for this intensity, not just all the things we've talked about, sacrifice, sacrificial, or the symbolic, you know, this impossible exchange, humiliation, but it's the fact that he says it in a number of ways in the essays, but he says it in the first essay with, we would forgive them any massacre if it had a meaning, if it could be interpreted as historical violence. And I think that this is something that also points to the impotence of the system is this lack and how terrorism has such symbolic efficacy for this event is this fact that it's not something for which a meaning can easily be found, even though many are are proffered and put forward as justifications. But deep down, there is no criterion for interpretation. It doesn't mean that Obviously, symbolically, it has a meaning, but I think that that's precisely what tries to get repressed, right? And it, to try to deny that symbolic efficacy. But without that, there is no other meanings besides the ones we try to give it, which we've talked about the alibis, right? Their martyrdom and paradise and blah, blah, blah. But these are all just these are all just justifications that are kind of played it on in order to as defense mechanisms, right? To sort of ward off the trauma of that event. And it's almost the uh, the trauma itself is used as or weaponized, you could say, as what's important, right? That's why we, you know, never forget 9-11. It's, it's really the trauma of the event that then becomes something that's an object of use, almost the object of use for someone who's protecting you from that trauma, you know? Yeah, and it becomes a, it becomes a weapon, as, as Baudrillard says in a, in a later essay, in this volume, this notion of now we can sort of we can perpetuate even more atrocities based on this victimhood status. Right and now, now in good conscience, in good conscience, we can wage these wars in good conscience. We can erect the security state, all these things that there is this that this notion of being of being victims, as right. he says, it's used as a credit card. And I kind of talked about this this last week, but I, I guess I would just briefly restated as when Baudrillard uses this very provocative image of us using the event of 9-11 post after 9-11 as this justification as this victim credit card, there is a sense in which, you know, so far removed, it's not just time that heals all wounds, but it's this notion that we've cast obviously with, you know, with the 20 years in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq and, and all these other things that we've been talking about, there's a sense in which, you know, our, our credit's kind of running out, right? So, so maybe Bojir, I would kind of ask what is on the horizon because, you know, we have talked about COVID and we're still living through it. Even if it's similar in its viral aspects, as we said, it doesn't have the same kind of symbolic status as an event mm-hmm. or as kind of diachronic event. So it, it kind of would be to, to ask, you know, Bojir, I wonder if he would say like, you know, there's a sense in which 
something is on the horizon. And you, you were speaking in eschatological terms earlier about this apocalypse, but obviously mm-hmm. before then there are going to be, I assume, other events that might reach this magnitude of symbolic efficacy. I think last time we brought up the notion, Taylor, you kind of explicitly brought up the, the distinction between COVID and 9-11, between the, you know, one of them's more symbolic and then COVID-19, you know, you can really see the the different paradigms here. You know, COVID-19 seems to be more, at least to me, uh, I mean, and to probably everyone, that it seems to be more, or at least focused on quantitative data or symbolism. I don't even know if that's a good word to use there, but yeah, I think that you're absolutely right in terms of that. It, I think it's almost funny, just to a tangential point, that the postmodernists who kind of circle back to a more conservative, in a true sense, and a more conservative way of thinking compared to, you know, progressives who, that's open to interpretation, but progressives who tend to be more aligned with quantitative data instead of a qualitative importance of ritual, of sacrifice, and um, of the symbolic. So I think you're, you're right on the nose with that. The thing that that really makes it important, at least even, you know, the echoes that it has to today, how we kind of, it's like, where were you when 9-11 occurred? Mm-hmm. Everything ties back. There's a singularity, this time singularity that ties, that goes all the way back to 9-11. It's that it, it has a particular symbolism, whether or not that was even intentional. It's inscribed. It's like it's permanently etched into our timeline. Exactly. I think that's the deep symbolism of 9-11 is its most important aspect. I brought up last week, there's a really interesting book called The Most Dangerous Book in the World, 9-11 as Ritual Sacrifice. Kind of nutty, but it, it points to sort of the larger symbolism and argues that all the numbers tie back to the Book of the Law by Crowley and all of this. But it does make a good point, and this is what struck me as the most important symbols. If we're going to use the great archetypes, say in the tarot deck, there's the uh, fall of the tower is clearly symbolized in the falling of the towers. But also when I remember seeing people fall out of the buildings or jump out of the buildings and that sort of odd symbol of what an Atero card is, the hanged man, kind of the upside down with the leg forming a, a triangle. Those are sort of the images that hit the unconscious on this level of the archetype of representing the true symbolism of what's happening. And I think those symbols were effective, that they reached everybody on the level of the collective unconscious to symbolize the beginnings of a collapse of a hegemon or the beginnings of a collapse of this new Tower of Babel. Go back to something Coop said earlier about the master-slave dialectic in, I think it's the third essay, Hypotheses on Terrorism. Baudrillard talks about this paradoxical inversion of the master-slave relationship. And I'll quote, this is on page 70. In the past, the master was the one who was exposed to death and could gamble with it. The slave was the one deprived of death and destiny, the one doomed to survival and labor. How do things stand today? We, the powerful, sheltered now from death and overprotected on all sides, occupy exactly the position of the slave, whereas those whose deaths are at their own disposal and do not have survival as their exclusive aim are the ones who today symbolically occupy the position of the master. I just think it's interesting because this notion of being able to gamble with death and, and survival right. not being the exclusive aim. This kind of gets back to your point about Tolstoy and, uh, and Anna Karenina, right? This notion of comfort. And it gets back to his original hypothesis in the first essay about this zero death society. And mm-hmm. it put in the light of what he kind of said, where survival is not the 
exclusive aim and death is at our disposal. I mean, there is a sense, as we said, that that its tune has changed in the COVID era. Capitalism has to go on. The worker has to expose himself, blah, 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 essential, essential worker shit. But yeah. it does still feel, even if it's not a zero death in that sense, I do think this notion of death being at one's disposal, I mean, perhaps that in a roundabout way explains so much of, at least in our country, and I assume in other countries, more and more people pulling away from the, the workforce, more and more people. Mm-hmm. It's not just about a living wage anymore, right? There is a sense in, of taking one's, of death being at one's disposal, there, that being right. kind of one salient definition of, of freedom in this at least in this dialectical sense of the master and the slave. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think Baudrillard points out the, this is sort of the biggest, this zero tolerance policy on death is the largest weakness of Western liberalism and its military hegemony. And I think Baudrillard points to in international relations, they call it body bag syndrome, meaning that a well-off country that is at a war doesn't like to see their own soldiers die even if they're winning the war, the amount of bodies dying and seeing that on the news is going to lower the support for the war. So this was obviously huge in Vietnam. We lost a lot of lives, but it was really the body bag syndrome. Now, but you can see Baudrillard is pointing out the acceleration of a body bag syndrome, right? Like in the last two wars, we barely lost a few thousand soldiers, but the body bag syndrome still applied there. I mean, this is one fiftieth of the deaths in Vietnam, but there's this increasing, increasing unexchangeability of our own lives for the lives of someone who has the freedom and the you know ontological bravery to risk their own life. Yeah, you made a, you made this point about less deaths in Vietnam, and what's interesting is you know now it seems like we've always known it, but we we've had more of a public dialogue about it and more words to use for it. But just the reality of post traumatic stress disorder. And sort of the reality of more and more and, and the public awareness of more and more soldiers dying after they've served rather than right. in the war as a casualty coming home and bringing that home. I mean, there's even been many popular movies made about it. I'm thinking about Jarhead and Brothers and many others of them. But, you know, those are just examples from culture. But you know, there's more uh, of, a, of a need or, or more of a ability to to cover it right in the news, for example. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I think it speaks to the suicide factor of the West. You know, I think PTSD is almost a symptom of this feedback loop of terror. You know, a lot of PTSD comes from the shit you did to other people there. I mean, a lot of it could, you know, people watching your friends die is bad. That's also terror. But the terror we had to enact on other people almost comes back to us as this this self-terror, you know? I mean, even like, you know, Timothy McVeigh, who was the OKC bomber, it's argued, you know, he was he was a Marine and he became radicalized after he saw these airstrikes that decimated civilian populations and came back and did this bombing. You know, yeah. there's this feedback loop of terror that I think you're rightfully pointing out can be seen in the symptom of PTSD. Even something like survivor's guilt, right? Yes. Is, is highly common, you know, this sort of guilt at not having been able to exchange one's death i think of the lieutenant dan you know in (laughs) in forrest gump 
his complete righteous wrath at a Forrest Gump for, for saving him from a death he was, yeah. he was born for, supposedly. Right. What do we think yeah, about? I, I mentioned this in the original conversation we had, but what do we, how do we feel about, I guess, the rise of, I guess, irony in terms of 9-11 joking and so forth, which I think has become a lot more popular, I think, amongst our age co- cohort. Like, is this yeah. attempt to try to symbolically exchange 9-11 in a, you know what I mean? By joking, by being ironic about it? I don't know. I mean, we all have our own, like, individual ways of trying to to deal with it. As he says, the hygienic conscience of the victim, maybe that cachet has, has run out. But, you know, as I said when we were discussing Freud on jokes with Jake Flores, kind of, you know, the way I dealt with the deaths of my parents was largely to use the word again in in the abreaction was to make kind of crude morbid jokes i do think that also as as we've said with the rise of conspiracy theories and and more of it becoming at least plausible in the backs of everyone's mind that like you know jeff you can't melt steel beams and whatever the fuck like (laughs) it's it's become almost like ingrained that and accepted that there is and this is a part of the complicity i think right that there is this sense in which it was used to justify so much bullshit that there right. is a kind of cynicism where it's like, yes, even if it even if it wasn't an inside job, it still it still kind of feels like it after the fact, looking back uh, based on all the mileage, all the re- all the violence and, and repressive, uh, repressive and security state institutionalization, just all the mileage that got wrung out of it it does feel hollow. And so it does feel like something that deserves in a way to be mocked, you know, not, and it's not to belittle the deaths that happen. It's not even to belittle the symbolic uh, trauma of especially people living closer to the event, like in, uh, uh, like in New York, but it's, it's just our way of kind of perhaps our way of dealing with a, a certain collateral guilt feeling that we are kind of the baddies, right? That, the United States kind of did, yeah. The United States did some some fucked up shit. It, it was already a fucked up event. It's already something to have to abreact to. And then on top of that, all that the United States did as a result, there is still some of that still has, I think, some lingering effects. If the trauma of the original event itself has has sort of lost some of its symbolic efficacy, there is still yeah. this sense in which. God, you know, I mean, just what it's just been a year, year and a half, two years since we finally fully declared the war in Afghanistan over. I think that's going to stay with us for the foreseeable future. I think the joke sort of is, is in many ways could be almost an act of resistance against the weaponization of your own trauma and fear and the supposed seriousness and and intensity of the event that's being used to justify all these things. When you make a joke about it, it's almost as if to take away that intensity a little bit, you know, to sort of challenge being an emotional hostage of people saying, remember this, you know, remember what they did to us because, you know, this is what we're going to do to them, so on and so forth, right? Yeah, the jokes, I think, can act that way. I remember when I was a freshman in college, my roommate and I kind of jokingly put up a bunch of 9-11 9-11 was an inside, you know, jet fuel can't melt steel beams, building seven, all that stuff on our thing, kind of jokingly. And I remember we forgot that it was 9-11, you know, it was, wasn't really thinking about it. And then we had like a bunch of people come up to us and be like, how could you? This is so wrong that you're doing this. And it, I was kind of surprised to see the amount of 
people who still consider this event to be like sacred, you know, like you cannot take away the sacredness of that event. This was in, you know, 2016, 2015. And it's still, I mean, these kids were five years old when it happened. And they're still like, how could, how dare you question the intensity of what happened there on that day, you know? And obviously so much of that was inherited from the cultural milieu, from their, mm. from their parents, from their immediate family, just Im- imposing upon them the seriousness and sacredness of it. So, I mean, 2015, 2016, yeah, I mean, I suppose maybe it's a little off color to do it on the day itself. But on the other hand, what what other day better than to than to do that? <laughs> yeah, to I, f- I feel like, thing? yeah, we just had the 20th anniversary, what, a year ago, almost less yeah. than a year ago. And there were yeah, definitely last, last a lot of <laughs> there were definitely a lot of jokes being made that day. Yeah. About 9-11. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's not it's not to mock the, the deaths. It's not to. And it's also not even to, to mock that the wars perpetrated are somehow able to be excused away by laughing at it. I think I think as I kind of mm. said, it, it does betray a kind of guilty conscience, at least yeah. in part. Yeah. yeah, right. No, I agree. I think the last perhaps topic we can discuss before we wrap up would be, I think, the element of architecture that's involved in all of this, because Odra talks about how you know, with the towers themselves, the twin towers, right? There's two of them. They're identical. They reflect or they bring about or like this idea of like a bar graphs or charts or something and like this totally ordered and like mechanized and like what actuary, you know, sort of actuarial reality perhaps is sort of represented by their physical shape and sort of, you know, they're mirrored on the outside, right? There's no more... He talks about it as a move away from this, I guess, more modern idea of like the spire or the individual tower, right? Which is sort of amusing, right? Because now after the fall of the towers, it's now reverted to the Freedom Tower, which is a single phallic tower Mm -hmm. that is the tallest, now again, the tallest building in New York. But I think that has reverberations, right? That move from the two to the one also corresponding to the collapse of the Soviet Union and the unipolar world where the U.S. was kind of the dominant hegemon throughout the world. So it's kind of interesting how that's reflected in architecture as well. Just mentioned briefly that the two towers, I don't know, there's like an element of like McDonaldization to it that you can, you know, it's like these two iconic towers. Golden Uh, arches, yeah. Yeah, but in terms of that, the fact that you can like, at least in like, modernity like now that you can for example have like a you know like a big mac you can have it like everywhere in the united states it's a reproducible commodity Mm -hmm. you know that you have these two towers that represent like global capitalism essentially and it's like the the fact that you can have two replica towers standing above the new york skyline and bodier mentions it's the you know you have the old like you mentioned coop the the spire like the phallic the what are those egyptian uh, obelisk obelisk yeah obelisk you know these art deco buildings and then you know you have these two square flat facing buildings who you know they yeah he he does a analogy that they just look like bars on a bar graph you know and mm-hmm. it, it really creates this distinct you know aesthetic but you know it's an aesthetic and and you know metaphysical like hegemony you know like the importance you know the, the meta narrative before used to be you know the actual the empire which was you know a monopoly for example the monopoly of business but now it's you know this this neoliberal kind of like oblique 
you know, hegemon. It, it doesn't really represent anything. It's just, it represents numbers kind of like, what is it called? Yeah. Uh, or, the bin- or the binary, binary or the move to binary. Yeah. The binary code sort of digitization, perhaps. I was yeah. thinking though, too, like this is getting a bit poetic, but I was thinking of like the tower, the twin towers is almost like a sort of Colossus of Rhodes for the post, for the postmodern era. In a sense, yeah, right? it's like you're saying this: the the two identical buildings of equal height are the, sort of the perfect symbol of the bipolar world that we have just gotten out of. And then you have them building it purposefully, maybe a foot or two taller than any other building in America, to sort of represent this new unipolar world. Yeah, it's a very interesting site. I highly recommend going if you're in New York just to see it. But I think I mentioned last time what they built right on the graves, you know, where the the blood of these thousands of people, you know, have seeped into the ground. They built a uh, like five story underground mall. That's almost like this, this mausoleum that represents, you know, all these people died and their lives were, were sacrificed and sort of the, the fruits of that blood of that soil is one of the largest shopping malls in America with the most expensive stores. You know what I mean? It, it does have this sort of symbolic unconscious validation of what has been sacrificed and what has been gained through this event. You forgot to call it a Yonic structure. I know <laughs> I should a, have said it's Yonic. It's, a, it's, it's a, Yonic. It's a deep gaping vagina of deep a gaping vagina. Right so, next to the uh, phallus too. I mean, I mean, but that's, I mean, obviously Bojo would say that architecturally, but he would also go on to say, as you're kind of pointing out the, just the absurdity, but the, total predictability of turning the site into a fucking mall i know who did that and you remember they couldn't they didn't want to build a mosque there but they built a mall oh, well yes you know? uh, i understand that and and uh that kind of lies outside the the scope that's for another day i guess but <laughs> just, the, just the what better way to erect a monument to capitalism already right. the twin towers were that to, to the global achievement of, of capitalism than to build a fucking mall yeah, it's to, perfect. To honor the victims, so it's perfect. <laughs> it has redundancies in terms of as well, like W when he came out shortly after the attacks and said, yeah, you know, enjoy, enjoy America's great destinations. Go, go shopping, right? These were the, yeah. these were the palliatives to, or this was the way to contribute as an American <laughs> <laughs> to the good, to the good old cause was to was to shop and travel and and consume again. Yeah. Stonks. Stonks. And um, I'm just going to do my little spliff on temporality uh, <laughs> in regards to, you know, just, just, to, just to bring it back to the towers. I think you're absolutely right, um, Young, when you mentioned about the, you know, it's like they built fucking shopping malls here, um, you know, and, and they, it's this, this thing with Americans that they try to like create like the sanctified thing. It's like the, the Vietnam Memorial you know, they have all these memorials. It's like, you know, it's this 9-11 memorial. And yeah, it, it gets foot traffic. And they're like, what best thing to do with the foot traffic, you know, than to to actually um, make them shop? You know, it's like, make it worth their while. It's like, what better form of advertisement? But just in terms of the temporality aspect, I just wanted to mention that the, you know, it depends who you talk to, but historians do. And, and historians, I know that's a vague category, but they, they do say that, you know, the fall of the nine of sorry the fall of the world trade centers uh is you know the end of post-modernity you know and it kind of enters into this vague you know you can say it's post-post-modernity or meta modernism whatever but 
in terms of that, it just it's just the the cyclicity of time. For example, you know, I mentioned that you know this McDonaldization, you know, you can have these two towers that are identical, which kind of does parallel a lot of you know postmodernity. It's just kind of the self-referential to do the meme. You know, it's like you know you can copy and paste something. You can you know you can just replicate something end on end. That you know that's a, kind of a staple of being modern. So it kind of flatlines time, and in a way with the aftermath of 9-11, you have, you know, you have this flatlining of time due to modernity, but you have a flatlining of time due to, you know, the callback of the event itself. You have this hauntological event where, where it's just, it keeps coming back to kind of haunt. There's a specter of 9-11 that, you know, um, permeates through our culture. And you can see it in, in, in genres that critique neoliberalism uh, and music like um, Vaporwave, which, you know, it's, you know, it's like the, the album, I think it's called, is it Macintosh Plus? Yeah, that's the artist. I forget. That's the artist. Uh, the album. Album. Yeah. Yeah. Floral so, show. Show. yeah, it has, it has a World Trade Center right on the cover of the album. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's this, you know, the staple of Paperwave is, you know, this, this hauntological theme of, you know, using reverb and using cues from like 1980s capitalist commercials you know in, the, in their music and it's you know it's directly tying to that it's directly calling back to you know what the world trade center in a way represented you know you had the 90s which was uh, and if you see advertisement in the and you know ads from the 90s or late 80s it's this kind of like globalization of like oh one one people united under one you know we're all humans and united colors like- of benetton for example is a good one <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, you, you know, it's like the most popular genre of uh, music at, at the time. It was tribal music, well, like tri- tribal, like, you know, not like, you know, like that pseudo tribal music. Like, uh, I forgot what, what it's called. But... Like world music? Yeah. Or world beat, Afro beat or whatever. Yeah. Know. Like, like yeah, no, exactly. That that was one of the most popular genre of, musics at the t- uh, of music at the time. But yeah, it's just kind of like this like a pastiche aesthetic that that still haunts us today and and we're finally starting to kind of move away from it but not really with COVID-19 um I don't know if I want to get too much into COVID-19 I know that we kind of want to maybe um move away from that topic but yeah it's just kind of mentioning how you know it's this you mentioned Coop that binary of zeros and ones of reproduction of just data these statistical points and you know, 9-11 with the collapse of it, we did see a slight maybe um, move away from that type. And then we're finally starting to move away from from that kind of like epistemic or metaphysical hegemony. Any responses or do we want to leave it there? Or any other points that anybody, burning points that we didn't get to? Uh, the only thing I would say is I really like when Bojard says one of the ways in which we sort of pornographically deal with the event of 9-11 is the rise of uh, the apocalypse movie, the destruction, the world destruction movies. And sort yeah. of like that, that fever of, of the world ending fantastically destroyed in film. But that, that, that's a, that's a kind of, that, yeah. That just feels, I mean, it certainly goes it to, feels like a Baudrillard in point. So yeah, I mean, it definitely goes to the point that we desired 9-11 to that's, happen. That's right. For, yeah. for mm-hmm. history to, for history to move again. Yeah, it's interesting so, that you say that, you know, like 
it is pornographic. And it's funny, we were talking last time that America's most famous porno ever, the One Night in Paris, opens up with a ode to 9-11. <laughs> it's even like, um, I don't know if you guys, how much, how many, I know Taylor plays a lot of video games, but uh, it's like even fucking Metal Gear Solid, the the last one, yeah. the Phantom, the Phantom Limb, it fucking ends on a shot of the skyline of the World Trade Center. Oh my God. You know, the fucking That's game, great. it's like, you know, it just, it, it's just, it permeates even other cultures. It's just, I don't know. It's just this thing that is always present. Yeah. I, I will recommend for anyone interested in 9-11 and sort of the history of this and whatnot, there's a really good Pynchon novel, Thomas Pynchon novel, his most recent one called Bleeding Edge, that's about 9-11. And he makes some some really interesting sort of ideas in there where his theory of 9-11 is basically that it's like laundering the crash of the tech companies in 2000. And it's basically like tech rising to the forefront of sort of American popularity by being in cahoots with like the CIA to basically take over this new business of like technological surveillance, which is pretty interesting. I mean, he has a lot of fun with it and kind of leaves it open to interpretation. But if you're kind of interested in this stuff and you want to kind of like dive into the lore and the sort of symbology of 9-11, I would highly recommend picking that book up. It's definitely one of the easiest, if not the easiest, pension book to get into. And that is really interesting how there, you know, what, okay, so 9-11 was 2001, and then what, Facebook mm-hmm. is like 2005, 2006, something like yeah, that. Yeah, around, like around or, yeah, around then. So yeah, you're right, it almost... It's very interesting that something like Facebook, which opens up those capabilities to like digitally right. monitor or what have you, arise shortly in the aftermath of, of 9-11. Yeah, That's exactly. What, well, the United States is best, you know, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do, just doesn't use tax dollars to actually do anything like government-wise. It fucking <laughs> does contractor work. Yeah, all to the military. Right. Military should- industrial contracts, huh? We shouldn't forget how it's how Facebook started, though, to <laughs> to rape to rape pretty to rape girls. Harvard girls. Yeah. All, all political economy is libidinal economy. Right? <laughs> that's right. Exactly. That, that's right, buddy. <laughs> Do you want to give a shout out to Decode? For yeah, you guys could, uh, and you guys, you guys leave us with a with with a pitch. Yeah, let us know what's going on, what's coming up. Thanks for having us, guys. Yeah, Decode, like we said, just had Eros and Insurrection episode. Next episode will be really interesting about the Virilio book, Strategy of Deception and about Telematic War. And then coming up, we obviously have the lecture series on difference and repetition, which we're really excited for. But again, just want to shout out Machine Unconscious Happy Hour. We wouldn't be here without you guys. And, uh, you know, we're obviously... We love you guys. Huge fans of the cast, but uh, <laughs> you guys are you guys are great homies. So everybody, keep listening to Machinic Unconscious. And I will say, maybe the last five episodes of Machinic Unconscious have been some of the best ever between the Brazier, Jake Flores, and the. I'm really excited for this one coming out on All Who's There. So great work. Yeah, I was just gonna echo pretty much what Young has already stated. I, I'm really happy to be here with you guys and letting us talk theory. I think that there's definitely a lot of, you know, the Spinozian sense, a lot of joy going around. So I, I really am happy to, to be back on the pod. Follow us on Twitter. Follow, uh, is it just at decode? Uh, it's a decode underscore K 
Decodecast. Cast. Yeah, Decodecast. At Decode underscore cast. Links will, gotcha. links will be in the show notes. Gotcha. Yeah, in, we'll, in our we'll, bios. And we'll put links to, to your show and, and SoundCloud um, and, uh, and your, and your Twitter. And I, I'm excited for the, the difference repetition series. I think that that's an amazing undertaking. And yeah, I do not envy you. I've talked to Coop about, <laughs> you know, what, what's the next text we should do. And I've thought about that. And I, you know, it, it would be like, yeah, you'd have to like discuss a whole library, right. Of, yeah. uh, of other thinkers. So big undertaking and uh i know that you'll have a lot of fun with it and um coop did you did you remember to press the record button i i did remember (laughs) (laughs) hell yeah we did it (laughs) we did it all right well thanks thanks for coming on guys this was a lot of fun honestly thanks guys thanks to the both of you that will wrap up another exciting installment of the machine unconscious happy hour with cooper cherry and taylor atkins peace Including the ultimate form of security, which is unconscious. The whole state of things, pure violence without option. This is the typical violence of information. It's violence because what happens there is a murder of the real vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, Lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.